If you have your Bibles, you can grab them, and uh, we're jumping into James chapter 2. Good morning, everyone. How many people have been to their 10-year high school reunion? Raise your hand if you've been there. So this summer, I had the privilege of going uh, to my 10-year high school reunion, and uh, I said, I think I came back that even that next day or uh, a week later and said there were so many sermon illustrations, I didn't even really know where to begin. Um, and I honestly didn't know if I could find a situation that could be more awkward than reconnecting with people that you didn't really connect with in high school. <laughs> that was until I went to my wife's 10-year high school reunion last night, which was quite incredible. So, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. So look forward to that time if, you, uh, if you're newly married, joining your wife for their, or your spouse for their 10-year reunion. It was quite enjoyable. Um, we, uh, so a couple weeks ago, I invited some people, I invited you, to send in your definition of true religion. We're looking at this series in, um, or at this uh, scripture in James, through the book of James. We're talking about pure and undefiled religion, and I threw out my definition of it, and I invited you to say, hey, if you could come up with a definition, what would you say? How would you define true religion? And this was one that I got uh, not too long ago. And it says this. My first thoughts were, it is believing in what you can't see. Being kind to someone who doesn't deserve it. Extending yourself when you don't want to. Giving when you need someone to give to you. For me, it is knowing God is with me in each moment of my life. I just thought that was a really beautiful definition. So I'll continue to encourage you, if you want to take a stab at this, if you want to sit down for a couple of minutes and try to write down or process what is a definition of religion, of true religion, send that to us and, and uh, we'll share them for the benefit of the community. So um, we're going to dive into to chapter two today, and we're going to be talking about favoritism. If you've read ahead or you know anything about chapter two of James, but here's what I want you to do first. Find one or two people that are sitting right next to you, maybe behind you, maybe in front of you, and you're going to ask uh, a question of them. So we're going to give three, two, three minutes here, and you're going to uh, try to answer this question. will be up on the screens behind me. But here's the question. When or where have you seen unfair or preferential treatment at your expense? So essentially, when have you seen favoritism that's hurt you? What's a situation in your life where you've experienced favoritism for somebody else that's ultimately hurt you? So share that with, uh, with the people that are, are around you. I didn't think it would be right this morning if we only talked about the time that we've been hurt by favoritism. So in the uh, vein of being authentic, of being transparent, here's the second question with those same people. When or where have you given unfair or preferential treatment to somebody else or at the expense of somebody else? So when have you favored somebody that's ultimately wounded someone else? So share that experience, if you have one. I'm going to guess, just based on conversations, overhearing or, or seeing even, most people share some of, sort of experience, or, or at least talking, that we've all felt that. Whether maybe we've been the perpetrator of showing personal favoritism to the expense of someone else, or maybe we are that someone else, that we've kind of felt that that we've been wounded, we've been hurt because of somebody showing favoritism to somebody. I had a, a story uh, kind of from my own life. I didn't think it'd be fair to have you guys share and then not share one from my life. Um, so 
in college, I met this beautiful woman named Grace, and I fell madly in love with Grace pretty soon. And if you have ever been in that place, if you're a guy, you'll, you'll track with me here, you kind of, you pull out all the stops, and like you want to be um, like totally chivalrous. And so you start opening doors, you start pulling out chairs, you run ahead, you know, you go and unlock her car door first, and you open it, and then you shut it behind her, and you give her your hand, and you pull her out. Any guys with me on this one? Yeah, you've, I mean, it's just kind of what you do. You really, you're, I was really trying to woo this woman who eventually became my wife, and so it worked. <laughs> it was great. But, uh, you know, within a year-ish, two years of being married, some of that stuff, you just kind of get maybe a little bit lazy, and you don't open the doors as much as you used to. You maybe don't pull out the chair at the restaurant anymore. And, uh, and I try to justify it like, well, Women's liberation. She's strong. She's independent. You know, she doesn't always want me. <laughs> she doesn't always want me to open the door. And and um, but what I found myself doing is kind of a, a silent way where I could show the love of Christ. Is if we were walking up to a door and there was a family behind us, I would make sure to stay there and open the door for the family. Or I'd make sure to do um, nice little gestures like that to other people because I thought, wow, what a great way to show the love of Christ without having having to say anything. You know. And so I would hurry up and catch a door for somebody, but, but maybe I would forget to catch it for grace afterwards. And so here's, here's the story in it. Whoa, okay, come on now. That's not how 9 o'clock service reacted. They were a little more supportive of me. Um, here's, here's the difference in that, and, and here's why I'm glad that I married the woman I did, is because she called me out on it. And she said, hey, Kevin, here's the deal. You know, I, I see you and I love the fact that you are, are trying to be really nice to other people and holding the door, but I feel like sometimes you don't do it for me anymore like you used to. And, and that doesn't really feel fair to me. That doesn't feel good. It doesn't make me feel, you know, important. And that was one of those subtle moments where I saw how me showing favoritism towards somebody else could deeply wound somebody. And I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful that Grace was willing to call me out on that and say, you, you know, you need to be better about this. You can't just be all about other people. You need to be about me as well. Let's jump in to James chapter 2. So if you're there, I'll read it, and uh, you can follow along up on the screens behind me if you want to. This is what it says. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a, a for if a man comes into assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he had promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. It is not the rich who is it not the rich who oppresses you and personally drags you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, 
you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I think it's important that we read this passage in light of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. I'll remind you what those say. We talked about them last week. Russ shared with us. But it says this in verses 26 and 27 of, of the previous chapter. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James warns us about our tongue in this passage. He says, take care of the disadvantaged, take care of the oppressed, and keep yourselves unstained by the world. And essentially he's saying these are the things that will mean that you're living out pure and undefiled religion. But then he follows it up with the beginning part of chapter 2. He says, these are the things we need to strive for, but if you live a life of showing personal favoritism, you're no longer living in these things. You're no longer living out pure and undefiled religion. Favoritism nulls all of what we just spoke about. And so, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, I think we could go verse by verse. We could talk about the Greek. We could look how uh, all these different parallels and stuff. But I think maybe for this passage, for this morning, it might be better if we actually take a step back and take a more macro view of what's being communicated here. Take a bigger view of this and actually get into this idea of favoritism. Not go verse by verse, but really hit home on what favoritism is. Because the section is essentially saying that favoritism is fundamentally incompatible with the Christian faith. Favoritism is fundamentally incompatible with the Christian faith. And I don't want to be Captain Obvious up here, but how we treat others is critically important. Now, we all sit here, and we all know that. Each one of you would say that as you came in this morning, and yet so often our lives don't really show that. I mean, we can say how we treat others is critically important, but oftentimes we don't treat others all that well. And so, again, it's critically important to remember that how we treat others is important. James, writing to the Jewish church at this point, in really a time of blatant discrimination, a time where an actual caste system kind of organized their society, where you had slaves and free men, you had women and men, you had Jews, you had Gentiles, they all carried different status. They all had different importance placed on them. And he's writing to the church in this period to challenge them to say, quit showing personal favoritism. If you're going to truly follow Christ, you can no longer look at these things. You can't see distinctions between free and slave. You can't see, you can't see distinctions between man and woman, so on and so forth. So he's writing to challenge the church in this time. This Greek idea of favoritism is regarding the outward appearance of a man as more important than the intrinsic inward merits. The old adage, you don't judge a book by its cover. We've all said it. We know it. We've all probably even done it at some point where you see somebody and you say, well, based on what they just said or based on uh, how they're dressed, I would never hang out with that person. We just wouldn't connect. 
But then over time, you actually get to know that person. You find out, wow, that, that's a really beautiful person. I'm really glad that they're our friend, that they're my friend, that we have commonality. That's this Greek idea of favoritism. I, I think we could even go a little bit farther and say that favoritism is a practice of giving unfair or preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. That's why this, uh, this little um, piece that James puts in here about the rich man and the poor man is so poignant. Because the rich man comes into the church and immediately people are rushing to him to say, well, you're a rich man. You, you could probably benefit us at some level. You have personal wealth, so you could write big tithe checks. You have business savvy, so maybe you can help out the kind of organizational structure of the church. You have connections, so you could connect us. And so they give the rich man preferential treatment. They say, come sit up front. And yet the poor man, who really honestly has nothing to offer, honestly will probably take more resources than what he'll give. They say, well, you're really of no value, so why don't you sit in the back? That's this idea of favoritism. And I think it's the same in our lives. I think we show favoritism to the people that will benefit us. I think we, we tend to think of favoritism as just the simple liking somebody over somebody else. We immediately go to that schoolyard example where you're picking teams or the, uh, the coaching example where you have the best player play more because he can score more, more goals. But this idea of favoritism is not just elementary. It's for us. It's for adults as well. Favoritism is more than the simple reality of the elementary school. Favoritism is sin. It's dark. It's messy. And James is writing to the church to say, you can no longer live this way if you want to live like Christ. In, uh, in college, I went to um, Western in Bellingham, and I was a psychology major. Any other psychology majors? Super marketable if you're a psychology major right after college, if you're not willing to go back to school. Um, and in the last service, I said, that's why I'm here, and that kind of came out wrong. I'm here for other reasons, too. But, um, but I had to do, my, um, I had to do a, a senior project on um, some sort of issue, and so I actually was intrigued by this idea of favoritism. Now, in the psychological world, they don't use a word like favoritism. It's got to be a little more um, academic. So it's called in-group bias. And so I actually did a, uh, my research project on, on this idea of in-group bias. And so I wrote this paragraph um, that I would sample to about 100-ish different people, different college students that were around the, the college campus. The paragraph essentially um, was this, about this made-up guy named Paul. Paul, who has some anger issues, uh, but but is genuinely kind of a good guy, grew up around Portland, Oregon, just trying to live his life. He's got a wife and an unborn child, and Paul had a tough day at work, came home, and uh, began to get in an argument over finances with his wife. And the argument escalated and got so out of control that he actually ended up killing his wife and unborn child. So a, a really um, pretty drastic story. So every single participant read that, but there were three different groups, and each group had a different beginning paragraph, a different vignette in the beginning that set Paul up differently. The first one was that um, Paul was a Christian. Paul came to the Lord two years ago, 
was active in his church, really trying to live out the gospel, and really trying to work on his anger issues in a Christ-like manner. That was the first paragraph that was attached to the bigger paragraph. The second paragraph that I gave to a different sampling of people was that Paul was a professed atheist, but still a good guy, works hard at his job, and still trying to work on his anger issues, knowing that it was destructive. And the third one, called The Control, didn't identify Paul as anything, other than he was just a, a, a guy that had a job and was trying to work on his anger issues. And interesting, interestingly enough, the Christian people that I sampled gave the atheist Paul a harsher sentence. There was statistical significance behind it, which again is a psychological term, but essentially saying Christians favored other Christians more. Christians didn't favor the atheist Paul. They thought he should, be, uh, he should get a harsher sentence. They thought he was more wrong, so on and so forth, pretty much across the board. And so it shows this idea that we do have in-group bias. We do favor certain people over others. I think favoritism does two things. I think the first is that it creates in us a posture of judgment. We judge people by their outward appearance. Again, getting at this idea, the, the, the Greek idea of favoritism. These are those natural, unconscious, and pretty much accepted snap judgments that we make immediately. I feel this way every time I'm in the line, uh, the grocery line at Fred Meyer, where you pull up next to somebody and you see somebody interacting with their kid and you kind of immediately go, oh, I would never parent without any context as to what the previous two hours looked like. Or somebody maybe treats uh, the person um, working the till in, in a manner that you don't agree with, and you kind of think, oh, they got some serious father issues, or you know, whatever those things are. But you kind of make those immediate snap judgments. Pretty much they just kind of happen. They just kind of feel natural. And yet scripture seems pretty clear that it's not our role to judge at any level. Scripture seems even clearer that it's not really Jesus' role to judge. In John 8, after his interaction with the adulterous woman, Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. Matthew 7, 2, it said, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. It's not our role to judge other people. Favoritism does a second thing, and I think this may even be a little bit darker. Favoritism values certain people over others. Once we make that snap judgment in the grocery store line, we, be, we begin placing a value on that person as to how they'll benefit us. So you see that parent, you say, ooh, I would never parent that way. Frankly, I don't even want to talk to that they would be of no value to me. Or maybe you see somebody else and you say, oh, wow, that person looks really cool. I could use a new friend. So I, I kind of value them. So I may show them a little more favor. Favoritism essentially categorizes which people are worth more than others. What's a person's worth? I think that's ultimately what favoritism is doing. And we may squirm in our seats this morning you may say, I never do that. And if you don't do that, that's awesome. But I think for most of us, we kind of live in this camp. We're here. If we take a, just a, um, 
look back in our last 24 hours, our last week, whatever, we can identify times where we've done this very thing, where we've judged somebody, where we have assigned values to somebody as to how they'll benefit us. If we're serious about following Christ this morning, if we're serious about becoming more like him, then our love and grace for others has to outweigh our judgment and assigned values. We must honestly assess the way that we personally favor some people. We must honestly assess how we show partiality to certain individuals. I think this is one of the reasons why we're drawn to Jesus, actually. Because Jesus does not show favoritism. He doesn't show partiality to certain individuals. Matthew 20, he talks about the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And he says this, and I'm not going to read it, I'll just kind of retell it this morning. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner that goes out early in the morning. He finds a couple of workers and he says, hey, would you work in my vineyard today for one denarius? And they agree and they come and they begin to work. And it says, at the sixth hour, he goes back out. Maybe the job was bigger than what he originally thought, this landowner. The landowner goes back out and finds some guys standing around, and he says, hey, I got a big job. Would you guys mind coming in and, and working my property? Would, could you come and, and work on my vineyard? And it says that he goes back out at the ninth hour, and then again at the eleventh hour, each time bringing in more workers to work on his land. And at the end of the day, when he's settling accounts, when he's paying all these workers, he calls the ones that he invited in last, and he says, here's one denarius. Thanks for, thanks for helping out. And the guys that were hired first are kind of waiting over there. I can imagine them in a group. And they're immediately beginning to think, oh, well, we've, we've struck it rich, man. We thought we were going to get one denarius, but that's what he's paying these guys. They only worked for two hours. We've been here all day. We're going to be getting paid way more. They probably immediately begin to go and start spending that money in their mind, as we all tend to do. And he comes to them, and he hands them one denarius, and he says, hey, thanks for your work. And the workers begin to grumble. And they say, well, what? that's not fair. We worked all day, and we got paid the exact same amount that these other guys did, and they only worked for a couple of hours. How does that, that makes no sense. And the landowner says, well, this is the, the agreed upon price. I hired you for this, and, and you worked, and, and so this is, this is how we're doing it. The guys continue to grumble. And the landowner says, well, can you really be mad at me for being generous to these other people? And he ends with this. He says, so the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Common words that Jesus spoke many different times. Now, the story highlights a great point, because for our capitalistic minds, this makes no sense. We have this idea that whoever works hardest, whoever works longest, should be compensated the best. And yet, there is no partiality in the kingdom of God. Jesus does not show favoritism to those who work longer. Jesus doesn't show favoritism to those who are better workers. In all the ways we would be partial, he's not. In all the ways that we would show favoritism, he doesn't. That's not what the kingdom is about. He shows unconditional love, unquestioning acceptance, and extravagant grace. 
The kingdom doesn't judge why those men that were hired later on in the day, why they were standing out and not working. The kingdom doesn't value those who worked harder or longer any more than the ones that didn't work as long or as hard. Jesus is essentially saying there is no room for favoritism in the kingdom. James reminds us in chapter 2 that Jesus has called to each of us is to follow the royal law, loving God and loving neighbors as ourselves. Now, when we show favoritism, we're no longer following the greatest commandment. Favoritism disqualifies our love. Dallas Willard says this. He says, God's desire is for us uh, God's desire for us is that we should live in him. He sends among us a way to himself that shows what in his heart of hearts God is really like. Indeed, what reality is really like. In its deepest nature and meaning, our universe is a community of boundless and total competent love. Our model is Jesus. He shows it in his parables. He shows it in the way that he interacts with people, but mostly he shows it in the greatest act of boundless and competent love and the fact that he came to save the whole world and not to judge. John 3.16, which we've all memorized, we all know, says this, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We usually stop there, but if you read verses 17, it says, For God did not son, send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The salvation of Jesus is not just for Christians. It's not just for the church. He shows no partiality in his love. Jesus doesn't play favorites. We've all felt the sting of favoritism. We talked about it earlier in the service. We know it's inherently wrong to judge people. We know it's inherently wrong to assign values to certain individuals. And yet too often we fail to extend this to others. We fail to extend the love and grace of Jesus to others in our lives. And I think James at this point writing is saying, stop it. He's writing to his church and he's saying, stop it. Stop showing favoritism to certain people. Stop being partial in how you view others. And I think this morning... It's good for us to hear, for me to hear, stop it. You can't live like Christ. You can't be like Christ and live this way. Show favoritism to certain people. Be partial in your interactions with individuals. We have to stop judging by people's exterior. Stop showing partiality to those who benefit us. If we're going to be the church that we desire to be, not only new community, but the church global, then there's no room for favoritism in our lives. We have to seek to grow in this area. Others should never question whether we love and accept them unconditionally. It's only through love that we will change when we begin to love others in the way that Jesus loves, when we begin to show grace in the way that Jesus shows grace, then and only then can favoritism be eradicated from our lives. 
this kind of love that we read about in Jesus, it's foreign and it's dangerous because we don't necessarily live that way. It's unnatural for us to love unconditionally. It's unnatural for us to have total and accepting grace for others. And when we talk about it, it should challenge us. It should push us. Push us. This kind of love is dangerous to live that way because it's going to mean that we need to take a step out, that we need to change the very things that we say, the very things that we do, the very thoughts that we think. So do we really believe that Jesus loves all people the same? Do we really believe that Jesus' love is that radical? Because if so, it means that Jesus didn't just die on the cross for Christians, but for Muslims as well. It means that he died on the cross for both the murdered and the murderer. That is an incredibly radical love. It means he came to save all people. Not just people that would attend church, not just people that would become great evangelists, not just people that would come to new community, but all people, even those who would ultimately deny him. That's the kind of radical love that Jesus displays. And it's when this understanding of love becomes the very fabric of our lives, when we begin to view the world through this lens of love and grace, then we will cease to judge people. We will cease to assign values to certain individuals who could potentially benefit us the most. James speaks to this reality in the last couple verses, and I'll end with this. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Through Christ we have liberty. John 8 says, if the Son sets you free, then you're truly free indeed. We have freedom from the sin that so entangles us. We are no longer captive to sin. We're no longer in bondage. We have freedom. We've been redeemed. We've been restored. We've been reconciled. We are loved and accepted. And James says that we are to speak and we are to act as those who will be judged through that freedom. We are to speak and act as those who have been loved and accepted by Jesus. And even though we're set free, we tend to find ourselves getting back into the old framework that we've operated in. We find ourselves once again held captive to sin, to thoughts, to judgments, to values, to all those things. We become accustomed to it. We give our lives back over. And yet we are in liberty. We've been liberated from we choose not to fully live in his love. And yet, we can choose to experience and accept that freedom. We can choose to love in the very way that Jesus loved. We can choose to show mercy in the very way that Jesus showed mercy. We can choose to show grace in the very way that Jesus showed grace. We can each day work at gracefully and lovingly welcoming others into our lives, regardless of what they look like, regardless of whether they may benefit us or not. We can actually each day choose to cast aside favoritism 
to cast aside partiality and to love in the very way that Jesus loved. Let's pray this morning.